afternoon and welcome to the 64th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of COVID-19 prisons and incarcerated people with Alan Mills and Melanie Newport. You can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube Live. Just go to COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls recorded as podcasts on Spotify or Apple, iTunes, anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 11th, 2020, there are 7,000,000 444,350 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 7,297,059 yesterday. Of those, 2,013,940 cases are in the United States, up from 1,992,136 yesterday. There are now a total of 113,467 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 112,513 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day. I like to continue that. Now I'm going to read an excerpt from a story that appeared in The Intercept May 11th, and you can read the whole story if you just uh, I've posted it on Twitter at US of Disaster. The headline is, a woman died of COVID-19 in a New Jersey prison after begging to be let out of a locked shower. And this byline is Alice Speary. 43-year-old woman died of coronavirus complications in a New Jersey prison after officials moved her from an area of the prison where she was quarantined for COVID-19 symptoms into solita solitary confinement, even though her symptoms persisted. Tiffany Mofield died on April 29th at the troubled Edna Mahan Correctional Facility for Women after begging to be let out of a locked shower, saying she could not breathe, a fellow incarcerated woman who witnessed her death told The Intercept. Mofield had spent about two weeks quarantine in an infirmary after becoming ill with symptoms consistent with COVID-19, but she was moved out even though she was clearly not better as she was visibly short of breath and extremely lethargic, said Michelle Angelina, who was housed in the same administrative segregation unit where Mofield died. She died right in front of my neighbor's door and just diagonally from my door about five feet away, said Angelina, who declined the intercept's offer for anonymity to protect her from retaliation. Many inmates are frightened for our lives and safety as a result of us witnessing Miss Mofield die. Mofield's death underscores the devastating impact the coronavirus is having as it spreads through prisons and jails where the health of incarcerated people was often neglected before the current crisis. Since the beginning of the outbreak, incarcerated people, their families, and advocates have warned that prison conditions would cause scores of preventable deaths. Mofield was one of 37 people to have died as of May 11th after contracting COVID-19 in New Jersey prisons making the state one of the deadliest for incarcerated men and women as corrections facilities nationwide have become epicenters of the pandemic. Mofield first passed out in the shower shortly after returning to the unit, said Angelina, who described the shower as a converted mop closet. Women are taken to the shower handcuffed to a deli belt and then locked inside where there's no emergency call button, she said. The night she died, Mofield once again passed out in the shower after begging for about five minutes to be let out, said Angelina. No staff responded in a timely fashion. When someone finally did come, Mofield was almost unconscious and was carried to a wheelchair where she became unresponsive. Angelina said that several author officers tried their very best to revive Mofield following an automated defibrillator's instructions and performing CPR until paramedics arrived on the scene. Mofield died just before they got her on the ambulance gurney, Angelina said. At the time of her death, Mofield was nearing the end of a five-year sentence for an attempted bank robbery. She was a mother of three and grandmother of four, whom friends remembered on social media as the life of the party and a neighborhood hero. Her daughter, Shatifia Cook, wrote to The Intercept that her mother was very big on family. 
I waited almost four years for that woman to get back out here with me. Cook also wrote on Facebook, I couldn't wait to wake up to her cooking breakfast. I wanted you home, but not like this, she added. Cook wrote in an email to The Intercept that her mother's symptoms were ignored. Had her mother been taken seriously, she added, she would still be here right now. Even while being locked up, she still made the best out of her situation, making everyone laugh, helping everyone get through their time away from their family, Cook wrote to The Intercept. Many people look down on people that are in jail thinking they're all bad people or that they did something really bad. But no, that wasn't my mother. Cook wrote on Facebook that her mother went into that prison a strong, healthy woman. She had people out here that loved and cared about her, and we're not stopping until we get answers, she added. We're going to make changes with this one. We're going to show these people that these inmates are somebody and their health and lives matter too. All right, let's turn to our discussion for today. Let me introduce my guests. Very lucky to have two brilliant guests today. Alan Mills is the executive director of Uptown People's Law Center, a nonprofit community legal clinic located on the north side of Chicago. UPLC is a legal organization that fights for justice for tenants, the disabled, and prisoners in Illinois. Alan has tried dozens of individual cases on behalf of prisoners in state and federal court during the last 40 years. UPLC is currently lead counsel in six class action cases alleging that Illinois prisons violate the constitutional rights of the people who are kept there. These include challenges to Illinois' supermax prison, known as TAMS, a claim that the medical care provided to prisoners violates the Eighth Amendment prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment, and the state's failure to accommodate the the communication needs of deaf and hard-of-hearing prisoners, as well as a recently filed case challenging the IDOC's failure to protect prisoners during the COVID-19 pandemic. My second guest is Melanie Newport. Melanie is assistant professor of history at the University of Connecticut. Melanie's research focuses on the policies and institutions of urban criminal justice systems in the United States since the 1950s. She's currently working on a book tentatively titled Community of the Condemned Chicago and the Transformation of American Jails under contract with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Looking to America's largest jail, she explores how contests over reform, human rights, and race shaped everyday experiences of state violence among marginalized people in American cities. As a graduate student, Melanie worked as a preceptor in African-American studies at Princeton and taught at Temple University Community College of Philadelphia and Garden State Youth Correctional Facility in New Jersey. She's trained with the Inside Out Prison Education Exchange. Alan and Melanie, thank you for making time to come on COVID calls today. Thanks for having us. So what I'd like to do in starting out is just to find out where you're calling from and and how things are there. Melanie, can I start with you? Sure, Um, so I'm calling from West Hartford, Connecticut. Um, we're doing pretty well. Connecticut um, is getting to a point, I think, where we have very few new hospitalizations. Um, so we're beginning to talk about the dynamics of reopening, uh, particularly, you know, universities like the University of Connecticut, uh, thinking about the fall. Um, and more locally, my very bourgeois suburb um, is having disputes on the town Facebook page about whether or not that outdoor restaurant seating is too ugly. Um, so there are some growing pains uh, through this process of reopening for us. The aesthetics of social distant outdoor eating causing it's problem very- there. Yeah, I understand. So, but can you tell us what um, what the situation there has been around George Floyd and protests, either in your town or what you know about on campus? Um, at UConn, uh, we have a student-led divestment initiative that's already been active, but they have been, I think, even more mobilized in bringing uh, demands to the university to address issues of institutional racism. Um, our Africana Institute at UConn put out a beautiful statement that is really worth reading. Um, and considering for anybody who does any kind of academic committee work, they have really good kind of applicable takeaways. Um, in Hartford, they had one of the largest protests that they've ever seen at the state capitol. Um, I think protests in Connecticut tend to be pretty 
low key in terms, you know, I've been part of some rowdier stuff in Philadelphia uh, or Chicago. Um, so uh, I think it hasn't been perhaps as intense on the kind of physical on the ground level that we've seen in other places. Mm. So Alan, to you, um, I, you're in Chicago, I presume, and what's the situation with COVID-19 there? And if you'd like to tell us a little bit about what you've seen in terms of the protests. Sure. I mean, Chicago has been Chicago and the surrounding Cook County have been um, one of the nation's hot spots. So um, we've been locked down until this week, um, pretty much entirely. Um, this week, uh, the the mayor has begun to open some stuff up. We do have outdoor dining, and so far, I've not heard anybody complain about the aesthetics. Of it. Um, <laughs> the bigger complaints are all the restaurant owners who think we ought to have indoor dining instead of just outdoor dining. Um, Oddly enough, the legislature took care of liquor stores by allowing for the first time takeaway cups. That is, they can now serve individual servings um, to go because they were breaking. They were not doing well at all um, during this this crisis. Uh, we also opened finally uh, barbers and hair salons and tattoo parlors. Um, so things are beginning to open up a little bit. Um, unfortunately, I think people are taking advantage of that, and the I'm concern is going to close again. Um, one thing the mayor has not done is reopen our beautiful lakefront, um, which has been closed since the first weekend when it was mobbed uh, after the shutdown happened. And at which point she just said, no, nobody's going on the lakefront. So there's literally been police at every entrance to the lakefront um, and continuing to take. Uh, and that's been months. And that, that, of course, for many people is the biggest outdoor space that's available to them. Um, right. In terms of protests, Chicago has been active, to say the least. Um, last weekend, there were eight separate protests in different parts of the city and nearby suburbs, two of which I believe had over over 5,000 people each. Hmm. Uh, here in Uptown, my community, where I'm located, um, last Monday, there was a huge demonstration, more people than I've ever seen in our community, including going back to the 1970s when we had massive demonstrations against gentrification, arson, a wide variety of issues. Um, there were several thousand people clogging the street um, out, outside of our office. So I, could, I had a bird's eye view of them uh, from my from my window. Um, and downtown, uh, there had been some, there has been some violence. Um, some of it caused by the police, some of it not. Uh, today's breaking story uh, is that when a shopping mall on the far south side of, of Chicago um, was broken into, it included some stores, but also Congressman Rush's office. And video has surfaced today of a number of police officers lounging in the office, sleeping in the office, um, popping the congressman's popcorn, drinking his coffee, um, while the stores next door were burning. Um, unsurprisingly, the mayor was not happy at her press conference today when these videos appeared. So, um, you know, Chicago, I think, is very much um, still in the heavy protest uh, stages. Uh, and obviously it's a protest not only against the police, but about the lockdown and the poverty and racism and all the different problems we have in the city. I, I saw that story about Congressman Rush's office, and I actually went back and, and I immediately double-checked it because I couldn't believe I thought I was I thought it was an onion piece right. or something like that. It's such an absurd uh, case. I don't know why I'm surprised by anything anymore <laughs> these days, but... Um, well, thank you both for that sort of situating us as where you are and, and what things are looking like. I want to start by just getting some background. You're both experts in prisons and incarcerated populations, and you're experts also in healthcare dimensions of that. Melanie, I want to start with you. Just give us some context um, about understanding what we need to know about healthcare in prisons and for incarcerated populations, some of the main issues. Um, sure. I mean, you know, in a number of places, I think people might say, like, what healthcare um, in these institutions? And that, you know, goes back historically, um, many local jails, right, places that are uh, designed to hold people who are temporarily incarcerated uh, for short periods, uh, many of whom are presumed innocent. Uh, you know, in the past, and maybe up until today, I mean, they might have had a doctor come once a week. So they might not have even had um, on-site medical staff. Uh, that has changed over time with prisoner rights suits uh, being instrumental in, in uh, 
creating an expectation of care. Um, but still, I think what that looks like in practice um, varies from place to place. So you have places like Cook County Jail, one of the largest jails in the United States. It's had a hospital on site since the 1960s. Um, you know, you have small rural jails uh, that have been recently consolidated into slightly larger institutions uh, regionally. Jack Norton has written about this. Um, that partially because they need to be able to provide services that a small community couldn't offer um, in a tiny jail, for example, the jail that Sandra Bland died in um, in Texas. So there's a lot of variety. And with, you know, things like the decimation of urban hospital systems, um, the deinstitutionalization of mental health care, um, you know, jails, particularly large jails, and Alan, I think, can speak you know, to prisons uh, more specifically, um, have had to focus their energies on caring for uh, a lot of different kinds of people when they're really not set up for that. Um, and they certainly don't necessarily have the kind of staffing levels that you would need to really care for people. So, um, you know, I think we have a lot of places where people, if they get sick, if you get a cold or the flu or any number of maladies, you're on your own, you know, if you're lucky, here's some ad um, and just write it out, I think is a, a common response to people getting sick in jail. Hmm. Alan, same question to you. And I'm particularly curious of just about the, the legal trajectory of this. I speak for myself. I make all kinds of assumptions about what must be some legal infrastructure that's there requiring basic kinds of care. Melanie's saying, that's not true. Can you walk us through that part of it a little bit? Sure. I mean, until the 1980s, there was no recognized constitutional right to medical care in prisons or jails. Um, then the United States Supreme Court said, uh, as part of a, a broader set of rulings that they made about prison rights, that in fact, the Eighth Amendment, which bars cruel and unusual punishment, does require uh, jails and prisons to do uh, basic medical care. Uh, the basic the, the basic understanding there was that uh, it, inflicting pain was clearly unconstitutional, and therefore, if someone was in pain, there's something you could do about it, and you choose not to. That's just as bad as if you were inflicting it yourself, and that's where that right to medical care comes from, is because of the constitutional prohibition against uh, cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, what that means has obviously devolved into 40 years of litigation. Uh, I think that most systems in the 1980s and late 70s began to implement um, some medical care in their systems, at least the, not the little jails, but certainly the statewide prison systems did. Um, but as with so many things in prisons, the just amazing growth in the population outstripped any ability um, to keep up with whatever little improvements were being made. Uh, and I think you can't understand what's going on in prisons and to a lesser extent jails without understanding that between the mid-1970s and today, uh, the population has exploded. We're about seven times as many as we did. Um, you gave the coronavirus uh, numbers earlier in the show, and what immediately hit me was how close they are. Uh, it sounded like about two-sevenths of the world's uh, corona cases are here in the United States, despite the fact the United States only has um, about 5% of the world's population. Well, 25% of the prisoners in the world are in the United States, even though we only have 5% of the population. So, you know, the United States has, has over the last 50 years, started this unprecedented experiment in locking up millions of people in prisons and jails. And whatever, we, whatever improvements were required by the courts have not kept up. So as far as I know, every state in the, every state in the country has had serious problems trying to treat uh, medical conditions, including, and Melanie talked about the simple stuff, and there's and there's no question she's right that people who have very simple problems don't get uh, treated, but neither do people with really complicated cases. Mm. I mean, I've had I've had clients who had who uh, were in severe pain for years. Uh, they were told, "Well, you're just getting older; it's arthritis." They were given a Tylenol um, and said that should solve the pain, only to find out that in fact they had cancer. Um, which had been treated with Tylenol, and by the time it was finally caught, we did metastasize, and they died within a couple of months. That is that is not untypical, unfortunately, throughout prison systems. Um, Illinois is particularly bad. 
Um, I always thought it was sort of a middle of the road prison system. We're in a nice blue state, relatively well off. Um, but then once we started working with experts, it became clear that, that Illinois was not somewhere in the middle. Uh, when they first started studying these things, uh, the Pew Research people, um, I haven't got their name quite right, but something like that, um, did a survey of medical uh, spending across the states. And Illinois ranked, I believe it was 49 of the 50 states in how much we spend per prisoner on uh, medical care. And it wasn't just by a tiny bit. California, which is the, the system where the United States Supreme Court ultimately said um, it's so overcrowded that there is no way to provide medical care for these folks. You've tried to improve medical care for 20 years, and now the only solution is to let people go home. Mm -hmm. That system spent about five times as much per prisoner as Illinois does. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we have a we had a long ways to go. The system everywhere was extraordinarily stretched thin, past the point where it could do a decent job of providing medical care before the current crisis. Is there some distinction to be made across state versus federal prisons and minimum versus maximum security? I mean, my my uninformed intuition would be that minimum security federal prisons might offer health care. They provide better uh, services um, for inmates, whereas maximum security state prisons wouldn't. But again, that's based in nothing other than intuition. Can you? Well, I mean. It's hard to answer that question. So I would say that nobody does it very well. Um, for a large variety of reasons, you're much better off in a minimum security federal prison than you are in a maximum security state prison, almost anywhere in the country. Um, the federal system has done a couple of things right. That is, they actually have a, at least one and maybe a couple of prisons which are um, designated as providing more medical care. So they're really medically oriented prisons as compared to an afterthought on prisons. Um, so it's good if you can get there. But, you know, I mean, minimum security prisoners, we've had some horrible medical cases there. Um, and in some ways, the maximum security prisons tend to get more um, attention because they get many more complaints because people are there a lot longer. The problem with minimum security prisons is people cycle in and out, and it's very similar to jails. People generally cycle in and out fairly quickly, and therefore the severe problems don't get brought to everybody's attention. Mm -hmm. Maximum security prisons, somebody may stay there for 20 years. Um, that's plenty of time to raise hell. But if you're only going to be in a prison for less than a year, um, then you haven't really time to push for changes. And you know, people don't understand how little time people spend in prisons as well as jails. But the average time in, in the Illinois prison system is less than two years. And because we do have hundreds of people that are spending essentially life in prison, that means there's a huge number of people doing you know, 90, 100 days in prison. They come in and out very quickly. And those are the folks that end up in minimum security prisons. So, no, I'm not sure you're right. <laughs> yeah, no. no. I appreciate giving sort of that level of detail. And I wanted to um, – so just sticking with the history for a second and the context, and, and Melanie, and thinking about talking to you about this, I was remembering you know disasters that I've read about um, and studied in the 19th and early 20th century. And one of the standard – um, tropes of disaster writing, sort of instant histories, and there are a lot of them for the Chicago Fire in 1871, let's say, or for um, uh, 1900 Galveston uh, hurricane, or any of those. There's sort of a, there's always a moment in these stories in which they talk about the release of the prisoners from the town jail, and sometimes you even find that almost juxtaposed with the with the problem of animals escaping from the zoo that you get this, this sort of sense in which the enhancement of the danger by the release of the prisoners, which is meant to be, I think, a heightening device in this sort of dr dramatic aspect of telling these stories. And of course, there's a racial component to that as well for these, for these stories. I know you've looked at um, some of the problems of evacuation uh, having to do with more recent disasters in jails. Could you tell us a little bit about what you found there? Yeah, so this is part of a, a kind of newer project that I'm getting into thinking about the more recent history of carceral landscapes and disaster. Um, and one of the things that struck me in looking at Hurricane Andrew uh, in 1992 when it hit Florida, it directly hit the Homestead prison. Uh, it basically destroyed a federal prison. Um, and they had a large numbers of people incarcerated 
down there just because it's a dense area. They have a lot of federal facilities because of the immigration apparatus down there, uh, even in the early 90s. And what really struck me, this is one that's held up as a model of prison disaster response. They moved heaven and earth to get to keep people incarcerated, but to get them out of the area and keep them incarcerated. Um, and so there are these kind of dramatic accounts of prisoners being, uh, after the prisons were destroyed, they were gonna ride out the storm there, uh, being bused to prisons in Alabama, um, prisoners being flown by US marshals on private planes to Puerto Rico to keep them incarcerated. Um, but the paradigm was still very much other places have not been hit by this disaster, and so we can afford to keep you incarcerated. Um, and that is, I think, a model that we've seen replicated, you know, in Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Katrina, people raising the question of what's happening to the prisoners, uh, you know, on places like Rikers Island in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're kind of subject to these these plans and these assumptions that it's not a disaster everywhere. And so I think, you know, as far as the the frameworks goes for these institutions and their planning and their imagining risk, I don't think they necessarily have it as an idea that there can be a disaster coast to coast, um, you know, even across mm-hmm. their whole city or their whole state. Right. It's kind of inescapable and particularly when you have prisons and jails that are dependent primarily upon local hospitals um, for getting prisoners care when they are very very ill um, what do you do when those places mm-hmm. are packed? Um, mm-hmm. you don't have that so uh, I've been thinking about that as a kind of framework because I think it's useful also in terms of a, a recent past in which we can't really necessarily imagine freedom right we lose our capacity to imagine things like pardons or clemency being used or even unconditional release for people who are in jail where you could just let them go without bond or without electronic monitoring. Those frameworks have all broken down over the past um, 30 to 50 years. And so I think that's really important as we think about, you know, the kind of the broader story is that freedom is unimaginable. Mm. You think then that these cases you're citing that there's the lesson that's been taken among um, some of those who administer prisons that these are success stories, that they've dealt effectively with whatever exigencies the disaster provided? Yeah, I mean, prison administrators love a progress narrative. Um, (laughs) I've read, uh, you know, 200 years of investigations and reports and people always like to tell you that things are on the up and up and they're better than they used to be. Um, And, you know, the bar for that is really low. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of places, the institutional memory is very short. So, you know, if you look at somewhere Mm -hmm. like jail, when I went there a few years ago, their most senior employee had only been working there since the late nineties. And they're like, Oh yeah, she's an old head. She's been here forever. Mm. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I think the kind of some of the expectations that we have about kind of what happens in other institutions, how responsive responsive they are. Um, I think, you know, maybe I'm going off topic a little bit, but like there's a fair amount of just day to day triage mm-hmm. in administration um, to where like these kind of larger plans and stuff. They don't get made. Applied to the story afterwards. And they're like, oh, well, that's pretty well because, you know, it wasn't a disaster because it's always a disaster in prisons and jails. I'm going to make that pivot then to um, talking about COVID-19. And just as you've described it, it's one thing if you have a hurricane that might be hitting a few states, one specific area, and um, prison administrators can deal with that maybe. Um, but it's another thing when you have 50 states plus territories plus native, uh, you know, tribal lands and every state emergency operations center is activated. We've never seen a disaster like this, certainly in my lifetime in the United States. Alan, maybe can you just walk us through a little bit what you've noticed in terms of um, prisons or jails being COVID-19 hotspots? Uh, I will, but let me, I want to key off what Melanie just said. Sure. 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's really interesting because the first thing we, one of the first things we asked for here in Illinois, um, representing prisoners in the prison system, was that they stop moving people from the jails into the prisons. Um, just like everybody else had a stay-at-home order, our theory was every time you move somebody, you expose potentially 10, 20, 100 people um, to to the potential of getting infected. So we said prisoners and, and detainees should remain in place as well. So, in fact, nobody has been moved from jails to prisons since this really started here. Um, and totally predictably, all of the sheriffs in the in the state have now filed lawsuits saying that um, we have to be able to transfer these people into the prison. That is, we have to move our problem from one site to another, and that will solve it, um, which is exactly what Melanie said. And, like, that is the mindset. If we have a problem here, we just have to move the prisoners somewhere else. And we keep pushing back and saying, well, you know, if you can't handle all the people in your jail, you should be thinking about why you have so many people in your jail, not moving them somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is just beyond the conception of, of most sheriffs in, in the state. And it's like, what do you mean? Of course they have to be in jail somewhere. Uh, we can't just let people go. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this idea that shuffling people around solves problems is deeply embedded uh, in corrections both the, the prison and the jail. So they also stopped moving people around the prison system as well. So the good news in Illinois is we've pretty well um, contained the hotspot that we had at Stateville Correctional Center, um, which is this, the prison that's nearest Chicago um, and had an early uptick in cases. Uh, it skyrocketed and within the sort of first day that they had any cases at all, uh, 12 people ended up in a local hospital emergency room. Seven of them put immediately onto ventilators, which strongly suggests nobody was paying attention before that because there's no way in the world on the first day that somebody gets sick that they need to be put on a ventilator. That does not happen in this disease. So um, clearly they weren't doing something right. Uh, and then from those first seven or eight cases, it just skyrocketed um, so that within the first couple of weeks, you had several hundred cases there, um, both prisoners and staff. Um, and then it leveled off, uh, and they didn't have any new cases until very recently, um, the end of May. There was another spike where they had another 50 cases all of a sudden appear. Um, the rest of the state is not doing nearly as badly. There's two other problem areas, uh, a medium security prison and a minimum security prison um, are the other two uh, where there are these problems, Hill and um, Sheridan Correctional Centers. Uh, much smaller prisons uh, and m- many, many fewer people, but also had this huge spike. The rest of the prisons um, have one or two or three individual prisoners and probably half a dozen staff members. Um, the bad news is we have not done the kind of universal testing that's being done in some of the other states. Uh, there have been less than, I want to say less than 2,000 tests done in the entire state out of a prison population of about 35,000. So we really don't know how far the virus has spread. Um, but as the as our experts tell us, you know that's not really the best measure. An easier measure is how many people get hospitalized, uh, and we have not had massive hospitalizations anywhere else in the state outside of Joliet and Hill. Um, so in that sense, it's probably right that they've done a pretty good job um, of containing the virus. Um, but the bad news is that they, the only reason is because they got really lucky. Um, there's no way that that the plans they had in place had anything to do with this. Uh, it just so happens that most of our prisons in rural areas, and those rural areas are the ones that have been least hit by the coronavirus among the general population. Uh, my nightmare is something that Melanie uh, referred to earlier. You know, what happened at Joliet with that massive input into the emergency room is they filled the emergency capacity in the town so that nobody else in the town was going to get on a ventilator. Nobody else in town was going to get into an emergency room. It was full from Stateville. The good news is Stateville is located in one of our bigger cities, Joliet. Uh, close to Chicago, so there's actually a fair amount of medical capacity there. I think about Menard Correctional Center, which is about twice the size of Stateville, has 3,000 prisoners in it, and the entire county in which it's located has a total of two ICU beds and no ventilators in the county. Um, Mm -hmm. Imagine that if coronavirus were to spread there and you were to get 500 cases, it would wipe out the public health capacity throughout the southern Illinois. It would just wipe it out for the entire 20-county region. So, you know, we got really lucky. It's not because we did good planning. It's not because we did anything else. It's a combination of clamping down movement um, and 
our prisons being located in the middle of nowhere. Melanie, I want to just bring the same question to you about just, I know you've been following this very closely, the prisons and jails as hotspots, and you sent me a pretty extraordinary statistic that some 16% of COVID-19 cases in Chicago could be traced somehow back to the Cook County Jail? Yeah, I mean, like, what... It's hard for me, I don't, it's hard for me to get my mind around. Um, uh, you know, these uh, jails, especially, these are places that are part of communities. There's a lot of coming and going every day, uh, both in terms of staff and people coming in and out. Um, some people talk about jails in terms of churn, which I think is dehumanizing, right? These are people, not butter. Um, but, right, the idea that it's just like whoosh, right, that all of this um, turnover I think is really remarkable, um, it, you know, particularly because Cook County Jail, a lot of their newer spaces um, that they're relying on, they've closed many of the older uh, kind of single cell areas of the jail. Um, so now they're really relying on these open plan um, areas uh, that don't have a lot of dark corners. They're kind of regarded for their um, better visibility as far as security goes. Uh, but there's no way to self-isolate. Uh, by the time somebody shows signs of sickness, it's too late. And one of the things outside of Cook County but that I heard from a a report out of a Washington prison is that like places just whole tiers or whole cell blocks would just kind of collapse at once. Right. Because there's just no escaping it. Um, so I think thinking about, you know, the ties that these places have to the community really matters. Um, even as uh, only recently have any kind of plans to restore visitation been Restored. So that's a critical way that the jail has been closed and, you know, probably for the best for everyone, given the circumstances, uh, but also in making the time that people are doing there much, much more difficult uh, without that kind of community support. So I think, you know, as much as we can talk about COVID, um, you know, in terms of the specific disease and the hospitalizations, that's that's huge, but there's also, I think, going to be widespread psychological ramifications of people being even more isolated from their support networks outside, which that piece that you spoke to at the beginning, I think, really um, resonates on that. Well, I want to... I, wanna... I, think, I think that's an even bigger problem in prisons, um, since so many people are uh, held in essentially solitary confinement, that is because we've eliminated so much programming. They're already in their cells, you know, 20 hours a day, um, often double celled with another person, which you know, if you've ever had to share a, a small space with another human being, um, even if it's somebody you care a lot about, um, you just have to get away from that person every once in a while. Like, all of us have been married, have, have experienced that at some point. Um, <laughs> but imagine it being in a stranger in a, in a place that's the size of your bathroom 20 hours a day. Uh, and what's primarily happened is they clamped down on movement and therefore people now in those tiny spaces 24 hours a day. Um, and once you report being ill, they move you to an even worse place where you're totally alone. Um, uh, Bree Williams, a, a professor of medicine in, in San Francisco, has written a nice piece about how uh, you know medical isolation is not solitary. They're very different things. Um, but in prison, the only medical isolation is often used as solitary. So we now have thousands and thousands of people in Illinois um, who have spent essentially the last uh, three months in solitary. And the documentation out there as to the impact of that on people's mental health and physical health um, is just overwhelming. Uh, you know, internationally, 15 days is considered the maximum you can send somebody in solitary without being tortured. Uh, and here we've done it for lots and lots of people, not because they've done anything wrong, but just because this disease is here and we don't know what to do about it. That's the way we designed our prisons, so that the only way to separate people is to lock them up all the time. Um, so it's going to have ramifications going forward for years, I think. Uh, I've dealt with a lot of people. You mentioned earlier our, our case about the Supermax prison. You know, I've dealt with hundreds of people that spent sometimes a decade in in real solitary where they that was the design. And every single one I know, still years later, um, it still impacts their lives. So I think we're only beginning to see the fallout um, of this disease. And it's not just getting sick and then recovering it. 
you know, we talk about all the people who recovered in the prisons and jails, but I don't think that's right. Uh, we have a long ways to go before we know whether or not they recovered or not. Remind people you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Alan Mills and Melanie Newport about prisons and COVID-19 and, and jails and incarcerated populations. Um, I want to stay with this, and one of the things that's really struck me about this disaster generally is how how hard it's been to see it. You, you know, because and I'm thinking of hospitals here, and I'm thinking of nursing homes, and and how hard it's been. Um, it's out of sight for most people because it, it, it takes place either in private homes, people are dying, or um, in hospitals where, you know, it's unlike most disasters where there's some sort of public dimension to it. Right. Where you can get a sense of it or where people are more willing to talk to the press. So I want to think about that in terms of, of prisons and the problem just of getting information out there. Um, Melanie, maybe start with you thinking about this in terms of, the, I'm assuming on a normal day, it's hard enough for a reporter to get information out of a out of a prison. What are the extra complications in this case? Yeah, I mean, you could do a whole show just on Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, those <laughs> should we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, yeah. Is is really challenging, right? Um, because that's one way that. Um, administrators can control the narrative about what's happening within their institution. Um, and in some places, I think that's more of a political and maybe than others. Um, but, you know, with journalism, I mean, we're, that's, you know, an area that's also a very broken down infrastructure in our democracy. Um, and so, you know, it was already difficult because a lot of that local coverage, granular coverage of prisons and jails would have seen in the 70s, for example, um, has dried up. And so you, I found it very um, helpful that uh, kind of large criminal justice sites like The Appeal and Justice Watch, um, the, the Intercept kind of more broadly, um, have been very attentive to, to covering this. Um, and I think there have been some, the, the story that you talked about at the beginning uh, speaks to a larger trend that I've been seeing where uh, reporters are, I think, being more careful and in actually including incarcerated people in their reporting, uh, which is, if it has been part of their process, hasn't been as clear. Um, but that has been tremendous in, in helping people to understand what it's like to live without hand sanitizer. Um, or the luxury of regular showers, um, you know, in in this climate of intense fear. Um, you know, similarly, people, um, Shannon Heffernan is from WBEZ has been amazing for live tweeting um, meetings and press conferences. And that's just, it's a small mm -hmm. thing, right? This is what journalists do. But this wasn't something that was necessarily happening before, but so it gives us a much better sense of what's going on um, in the institutions. Um, and, you know, I think similarly through, you know, the New York Times and Injustice Watch doing this data journalism where they're actually keeping a tally of how many people, how many mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um are happening in jails, I think has been instrumental in terms of kind of, um, preparing the kind of political will for the response that we've seen in the last couple of weeks to other forms of carceral violence uh, through police mm -hmm. violence, um, in part, right, that the consciousness was already kind of in the foreground in terms of like, there is injustice happening with regard to COVID and incarceration. Mm -hmm. Alan, I wanted to ask you about this as an advocate. Um, Again, sort of same idea. Your work is hard enough on a, on a normal day if there is such a thing in a uh, prison or a jail. How has it been harder at this time? Oh, it's been much, much harder. Um, you know, again, for pretty good reasons, one of the first things the department did was cut out all the visitation by families. Um, lawyers, in theory, were able to go in, um, but only uh, you had to have your temperature checked and turn out, then fill out the little piece of paper saying whether or not you've been exposed. 
Um, we, as an office, chose not to do those, um, partly for our own safety, but even more so, we didn't want to be the vector that brings a brings the disease in unknowingly. Um, God forbid it's us, they trace it back to the, and you have an explosion inside a prison. So uh, previously, through one of our settlements, we have the right to tour any prison where there are mentally ill people housed, which is all of them, as it turns out. Um, and we did that, the telephone calls. Obviously, that's not anywhere near as good as talking to the prisoner yourself because you're then getting second or third-hand information and no way really to verify it. But at least it was giving us some idea. And then we've really cranked up the number of legal call telephone calls we have with prisoners. Um, those are still confidential, so we still have those. And we are having probably 15 to 20 of those calls a week now. Um, so it's it certainly made it more difficult to deal with our, our clients. Um, it's made it much, it's made it impossible to have face-to-face conversations with them. Um, but we still get a, a massive number of letters and we're still doing these phone calls. So it's, we probably have better information about what's going inside of the prisons than most anybody else does in the state. Um, but it's nothing like what we had before. Uh, and, you know, frankly, lots of reporters, including Shannon um, Heffernan, which we talked about, uh, have reached out to us trying to get information from what's going on inside uh, because they, you know, a good reporter, if they hear from a prisoner saying, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening, they can't just report that. They need some verification. Right. Um, and it's that verification that has become extraordinarily difficult to get. Um, you can't just, you know, in any situation, you can't just go interview prisoners and say, you know, have you all seen the same thing? You have to have a particular person. you got to get on their visiting list and all that kind of stuff as a reporter. Uh, but now it's just become much, much harder. You just can't. You really have no contacts. So you have to rely on people like me. Um, as well as friends and family to tell what they are. And then you ask the Department of Corrections pointed questions and you hope you get a not too dishonest answer um, or you get any answer at all because, of course, they don't have to respond to you. So it, it, it has not been impossible, but it is only been difficult. Remind people you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Alan Mills and Melanie Newport, and you can get questions in using the YouTube live chat, or you can put them up on Twitter um, and uh, get those questions in now. If you, if you have one for either one of the guests today on COVID calls, I wanted to now sort of look at this through the prism of of George Floyd's murder and and where we are with that. And um, Melanie, I think to you first, and what kind of connections? And then are you, have you, are you surprised at the kinds of things maybe you've seen talking about defunding the police or abolition or, or even I've seen some you know, calling for the end of incarceration, which might be something you would um, sometimes see one person handing out a leaflet at a protest or something like this. And all of a sudden it's not, it's, it's, I don't know if, if I should describe that as mainstream, but it's certainly not been on the fringe, it's moved much more centrally into the kind of discussions I've seen around the over the carceral state more, more generally. What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things going on. Um, one, you know, I come from a military family, and we always talk about readiness, um, being ready whenever the phone call comes to deploy, right? And I think that the abolition movement was ready. Um, these groups have been um, you know, maybe in kind of more left or university or kind of smaller circles, uh, doing the work on the ground. Um, and, you know, alongside prisoner rights groups, alongside prisoner families. Um, and so it wasn't, you know, they had to some extent a kind of a social media infrastructure. Um, bond funds have emerged, in, you know, since Black Lives Matter. Um, as a kind of major place for people to do kind of justice philanthropy that can literally help people get free. Um, mm. right? Those, those already existed. Um, but when you have people sitting at home feeling useless, um, watching the news, hearing about health disparities um, racially um, and how these are shaping this pandemic, maybe even losing their own family members, um, you know, my colleague Mickey Maclier wrote a really beautiful op-ed in the Washington Post a few weeks ago about how we need to publicly mourn, um, that that's part of dealing with something like this as a nation. And then George Floyd was murdered. 
Um, and I think so much of the unrest we've seen, so much of the subsequent organizing, so much of the refusal to accept the old, tired reform suggestions of body cameras and rules right. and whatever for the police, this is brief. This is a reflection of of the anger that comes with mourning and the sorrow um, that comes with, with living in a failed state. Um, so I, you know, on the one hand, um, I think a lot of abolitionists have been very surprised at the millions of dollars that bail funds raised in tandem with the unrest as it kind of moved across the nation. Um, but on the other hand, right, these folks were ready to go. And I mean, mm. like Allen have been doing the work for 40 years, right? He's mm. been here. Um, so, and obviously we should all be giving to Uptown People's Law Center. Um, but I think it's really remarkable that that people were ready and they saw the power of things, you know, of other things that had been, I think, maybe more active or more prominent as abolitionists kind of organizing during the, the pandemic of mutual aid funds, right? Again, kind of creating these community um, relief strategies that kind of circumvent the challenges of the state, those were already happening. And it's really easy to move from kind of one form of organizing to another once mm. once you're mobilized like that. Alan, I want to ask you a similar question. I mean, in these last years, there have been so many things that have defied my imagination into how we can erode a democracy and how quickly we can challenge norms across the board. And then, but also in these last months, as Melanie's describing, it's not that these ideas may not have been out there, but now to bring them into a much more uh, wide swath of the American population as an imagine to expand their imagination around what's possible. I guess I'm seeking some silver linings here. I don't know, but I'd like to get your your sense of it as a advocate and reformer. Has your phone been um, ringing off the hook? Are you are you seeing an appropriate level of of giving to Uptown People's Law Center? I mean, are you what's your uh, I mean, so, I, yes, our phone is ringing off the hook um, by all kinds of people. Everybody from Trinity and Restoring to know how they can get their loved ones out of prison. Um, we've gotten a whole lot more. I mean, we never got those calls before. Now everybody's calling saying, you know, my son is going to die. Um, you know, they're in there for nine violent crime. How come they won't let them go? Uh, you know, we get, we get hundreds of those calls. We never used to get any at all like that. So, uh, obviously, this idea that we should lock people up and then forget about them is now no longer the accepted norm among a lot of people. Uh, and the same thing is true with the police. Uh, I think that there's a really nice piece, which is about to come out in time, but is online today, um, drawing the, the parallels between COVID-19 and mass incarceration, um, how they both reflect um, the deep-seated racism in this country. Uh, the racial imbalance in the prison system has been there forever. Uh, but certainly a lot more so since the 1970s and continuing to today. Uh, and now we know that there's a significant racial imbalance in the uh, number of people who get sick and, and certainly the number of people that die uh, of COVID-19. So, And they're really caused by the same thing. They're caused by the structural racism where black people in particular and people of color generally are not given the same opportunities, are not treated the same way by society as a whole. Uh, you know, the reason they're dying more of COVID-19 is because they have crappy health care in the first place. It's because they're the ones that are doing the so-called essential jobs where you have to take public transit to it to a job which is not protected. Um, so it's not surprising that the lower income folks, which tend to be black in this society, uh, are the ones that are most affected by COVID-19. And they're also the ones that come into contact with police because their neighborhoods are vastly over policed compared to all the other neighborhoods in the, in the country. So. Uh, it's these are parallel structures, and I think that people are losing faith in law enforcement in general, and I think it, on the medical side, in the ability of government, particularly at the federal level, uh, to respond in a, in a meaningful way to a crisis. And that, I think, is, is bringing this idea of abolition that they're, you know, government is not necessarily the enemy on everything. Um, there are some things they should be doing, but locking people away is not necessarily their first, shouldn't be their first priority. Whereas that has been the sort of mantra. Government isn't good at anything except locking people up. That's sort of been the, the political genre out there for right. you uh, from Reagan on. And that I don't think anybody accepts that right now. 
is the only thing the only thing that the government should do is lock people away. Everybody thinks they should be doing more in this kind of health, public health crisis. So yeah, I think they're intimately related. Uh, and of course, uh, the two are not unrelated. We started talking about how prisons and jails are part of the community, and Cook County Jail is a hot spot, and that's where the 16% figure is is so dramatic. It's not evenly spread among the population in Chicago, just like uh, the people go to jail is not evenly spread among the Chicago. People come out of the jail and they go to the already overly impacted communities, the poor black and brown communities. That's where they go from the jail. That's who goes in the jail. That's who comes out of jail. That's who infected in the jail. That's who's infected outside the jail. So this is not like two separate spheres. This is all the same thing. And I think that's being driven home. I think that the best measure of success about the, the abolitionist perspective is that people are now trying to co-opt it. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't try to co-opt it if nobody cared about it. Mm -hmm. So people are now saying, well, they don't really mean abolition. What they mean is more body cameras, or they mean a little more mental health mm -hmm. care. And no, that's not what they mean. They've been talking about this for 20 years, and they mean really get rid of it. Um, they're serious about getting rid of it. And there's a mm -hmm. body of theoretical writing now out there as to what that means and how you get there and how you can reimagine these things. So I think it's great success that the New York Times is now has an editorial on defunding police. And its point is, well, you're not really talking, people aren't really asking for defunding the police. But they are. But the very fact that it's being discussed in those terms is, I think, remarkable. And I see the same thing. You, you mentioned the bail funds, Melanie. And the same trajectory happened there. I mean, five years ago, people thought it was insane that you could have uh, you could eliminate cash bond. But now that is a real issue of public discussion, and people are doing it. Cities are doing it. Um, and it's only been five years later. So obviously the world is, is ready for a more serious discussion about uh, what we should do with prisons and jails and public safety than it has been in my, since I've been doing this work for 40 years. This is the most serious discussion that's happened that way. I think the last time we had this discussion was in the 1960s, uh, and then that discussion got totally co-opted and we went the entire opposite direction. Um, but we're back to that point where we were in the 60s saying, you know, maybe mm. we're locking up too many people. Maybe we have to look for an alternative. This is not working. I want to uh, come to a question here that uh, came in from Michael Fisher, and it's for you, Ellen. It's actually, he's, he's looking to clarify um, the situation about actually getting in to the prison. Have you been going in? Um, he wanted to know if it's if it's possible, like if you've been able to, and I'm interested also, to the extent in which advocates have been able to go in, and I'm assuming also it's a moving target. So if you haven't been, when do you plan to be able to? Can you say a little more about that? Um, we have not been in uh, by our choice. We could have been going in to visits. We could not have been doing the tours we're doing. Uh, but we could have gone in for legal visits. I see. Uh, but we chose not to, uh, both for our own staff safety as well as for the safety of the prisoners we'd be seeing. I firmly believe that the fewer people that walk in and out of prison, the more likely they are to be able to keep the prisoners inside safe. And I don't want to be one of those people that walks in and out when they don't have to. I see. Okay. Um, just to, to, an observation I mean, that's, that's so profound, what you're both saying, that too, about the sort of spatial geography and thinking about prisons and, and jails and, and community. And I think I think we're going to be able, maybe we already can, to, to look also at so-called essential workers, people in meatpacking, um, people in um, who are doing cleaning in hospitals, people who work in uh, elder care facilities and nursing homes. Yep. That that spectrum that that's also people who tend to come um, from minority communities, low-income communities, and so this traffic of the coronavirus is moving through, it's exposing all of these fracture points, socioeconomic fracture points, and in and particularly in and out of institutions where we have as a society basically said, that's somebody else's problem. Whatever happens behind that wall is somebody else to, is going to worry about that. But right. of course, in reality, what we know is that people have to work there and they have to go in and out of those places. And that's where we're seeing these, these hotspots. That's where we're seeing the real impact, not the only impact, but the, the disproportionate impact, I think. Um, that to me is really uh, stunning. It's not like we need to be reminded that there's inequality in America, and yet here we are again with the, the most extraordinary lesson of it, certainly in my in my lifetime. I want to um, ask you a question. We're almost up on time, but I, um, 
I want to think about reform in the middle of a disaster. And it ties into what we were just talking about, you know, things that are being discussed that hadn't maybe been discussed so seriously before. Does history have anything here for us, Melanie, in terms of um, possibilities for carceral reform in the in the midst of what might be seen as disaster or in the midst of very tense and uncertain times in American history? Or is it the opposite, that those kind of things provoke backlash against reform? Should we be expecting some legislative remedies to come through this, this moment in time? Um, I mean, at the city level, they're already happening in terms okay. of um, places like Philadelphia saying they're not going to give their cops raises. Um, uh, across the board, I think, you know, it, many, many cities are reevaluating their budgets. And those conversations are happening publicly on Zoom, right? And these televised or streamed uh, city council meetings. So I, I think that's one way in which people are very immediately challenging the kind of carceral continuum. Um, you know, as a scholar of reform, I can be a little bit cynical because reforms can often make institutions a lot stronger and help to increase their capacity to incarcerate even more people. And that's the story that I tell in my book. Um, but I don't think that we should let that trajectory keep us from continuing to make demands of government. Because I the history of incarceration in this country is that things only improve, only become even more marginally humane, if that's possible, because people demand it of the state. The state does not default to, to valuing the humanity of incarcerated people. Um, and so to the extent that there's you know, even the most incremental change, I, I value that. Um, but I do think we're at a point where uh, we need to have a, a conversation about the larger structures of this system and what we expect it to do. Because I think there's, you know, what we're seeing in the streets is a real disjuncture between uh, what the state says it's doing and what's actually happening. Ellen, what's your perspective on that? Uh, similar. I think the crises um, are both are, are always inflection points, and they call, and they have great potential for uh, positive change as well as great potential for very negative change. Mm. I mean, look at the depression, for example. Uh, you know, in in this country, it generated a lot of really good changes. You know, labor unions became much stronger. The Social Security Administration, the Social Security system was put into place. Um, all kinds of good things came out of the New Deal. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at places like Germany and Spain, um, they went in an entirely different direction. Uh, the same thing happened in the late 60s. You know, some of the unrest in prison led to real reforms. Uh, others, and I think Attica is kind of the, the keynote here, um, is that others led to a huge crackdown. And it, it, I think what's important is that people understand that there are choices to be made and that uh, people need to not sit back and wait for those choices to be made because they will without pressure, as Melanie said, they won't be good choices. Uh, government will default to empowering itself and maintaining itself rather than doing fundamental changes. Um, but that with the right sort of public uprising and the public pressure, good things can come out of a crisis. Alan, how can people support your work? Uh, we have a website at uplcchicago.org, um, and there's a donate button on every single one of those pages. Um, we can also, you can also dig down a little bit where, what we do, and it'll have pleadings in all the cases I've been talking about today, expert reports, et cetera, um, to find out a lot more about what's going on in our prisons in Illinois. This is an hour that has just absolutely flown by, uh, and I want to thank you. I warned you it could be a two-hour uh, Well, uh, <laughs> careful what you wish for, because I was going to try to get to implicate you now to come back. I think these, are, you know, this is a disaster of going to be a great long duration and i think we're going to need more conversation here we didn't even get to talk about international perspectives which i'm very interested in so let's um uh take this maybe the possibility we can get you back a little bit later in the summer or into the fall i want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls tomorrow we're going to be talking about race health care and the hospital crisis with nick ramos and 
Danny Ritchie, and I want to thank you, Melanie Newport and Alan Mills, for making this time to talk to me on COVID Calls today. Thank you. I'm happy to come back. You can catch COVID Calls every weekday, Monday through Friday, at 5 p.m. on YouTube Live, and you can always catch it on uh, podcast anywhere you hear podcasts. Stay healthy, everybody. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.